0: Welcome to The Green Rush, a podcast about the intersection of cannabis, the capital markets, and culture. On a weekly basis, hosts Ann Donahoe and Nick Opich of KCSA Strategic Communications speak with the business leaders, financial experts, cultural icons, legislators, and generally interesting people moving the cannabis and psychedelics industries forward. This week, Anne and Chris Crane, who is hosting here on The Green Rush for the first time, are back with a new episode with special guests Jigger Patel and Doug Cortina, CEO and chief strategy officer of NorCal Cannabis, one of the leading producers of indoor grow cannabis in the highly competitive California market. In a market filled with companies that have struggled or shuttered in the wake of a transition from gray market to fully legalized and regulated cannabis, NorCal has emerged as profitable while producing high quality products at competitive prices. Price points. In this episode, Ann and Chris connect with Jigger and Doug to discuss the state of the California market, NorCal's ability to succeed where most have failed, their expansion plans into other states, and what the future of federal legalization and interstate commerce could mean for the company. So sit back and enjoy our conversation with Jigger Patel and Doug Cortina, CEO and Chief Strategy Officer of NorCal Cannabis.
1: Jigger and Doug, welcome back to the Green Rush. Um, Jigger has been on uh, years ago, and I believe, um, Doug, this is your first appearance here. So, um, can you start by telling us uh, what NorCal has been up to for the past couple of years? Is that <laughs> too broad of
2: a question to start? <laughs> uh, I just, I know, just hanging. Just hanging. Out. Oh, uh, well, I think when we last spoke at NorCal was, um, you know, on our way to being one of the larger vertically integrated companies here in California with an emphasis on delivery um, and direct to consumer. Um, you know, that was, Scott, 2018, that was our North Star. Um, and what we were able to figure out through a, a series of kind of ups and downs, as, as most big operators in California, big and small operators have seen in California, was um, we really need to focus on what what our core capability was. And and for us, that's indoor cultivation. Um, and so for the last call it two years, we've been focused on becoming the most efficient indoor cultivators in the space uh, and bringing our brands of products to consumers across California.
3: That's fantastic. Yeah, I'm gonna, this is Chris, I'm gonna jump in here. Um, you know, I, I do wanna come back to NorCal. We're gonna drill down more on what you guys have been doing specifically. Um, but let's let's kind of use this opportunity to jump into the California market more generally and your impressions of the California market more generally. It's a big hot topic these days. You know, there's been a lot made about the rough state of the California cannabis industry, particularly this mix of like high taxes, Byzantine licensing structure, the cost of regulatory compliance, competition from the legacy and illicit markets, and how all these things have caused many companies in California to like barely scrape by and, and many more to shut down. Um, but you know, so so NorCal's performance aside, what's your general take on the overall state of the California cannabis industry, and what kind of changes would you guys like to see to help ensure that California can continue to be seen as the most important and prominent state in cannabis?
2: Yeah, it's a it's a great question. I think you know I think just really starting with you know, the state of it today, and I think it's no secret, right? We can't be out here pretending that all of these things aren't at a crossroads that are really affecting all companies in the space. But, you know, I think people like to blame the entire regulatory system for what happened. And I think if you go back to the old days of Prop 215 here in California, um, it's always been a competitive market and and it's been hard to kind of put that cap back in the bag. Would you say, Doug? Like, I, I agree.
4: And I think You know our view when we formed norcal four or five years ago was that california was at the time and it still is the most important cannabis market in the world and a lot of people would agree with that and probably point to the size as the main reason for that and and obviously that's a huge factor right if if california was its own country it'd be the biggest country in the world to, to have legal cannabis but i think equally or even maybe more important than than the sheer size of the market is the level of competition and frankly the authenticity that you know brands that have meaningful mind share and, and meaningful market share here, you know, have and, and can export, right? I mean, brands typically emerge from from California, sort of sector agnostic. In in this space, having decades of, of legacy, you know, operational, frankly, prowess here, you know, that's 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 all the more the case. So as you're seeing companies and brands, you know, leave the market, it is creating opportunities for, you know, the best and the most efficient to to kind of win that market share. And and our view is like over time, the you know, California will become less fragmented uh, and the companies and the brands that, you know, have managed to to work through this and navigate this space, they're gonna be in a phenomenal place, you know, relatively speaking.
2: I think to piggyback on, on what Doug was saying, I think, you know, when you look at California just in general today, like sure, you can point to taxes. Sure. You can point to lack of retail. And I do think they made a big, a big mistake by, you know, having this, the, you know, local governments, uh, getting the ability to block retail. Right. I mean, I, if you look yeah. at it to this day, where 70% of municipalities, I think that was the last number that I saw still do not have retail, which is crazy. Uh, you know, it's a big, it's I, a big problem all over the country.
3: That home rule, that home rule issue. You see it. and we see it even on the East Coast. But.
2: Yeah, and and because you allowed so much cultivation, right? Like people went big, and I think that that's playing in everywhere, right? Like there are operators at scale here, um, so the market's not really right sized. And I think what what you're seeing here is that play out. I mean, the problem is, is you still have a bunch of really efficient operators in different parts of the state. Um, that can still slug it out and if, if this were a fight right and it kind of is every day right and, and i think what what we're seeing here and something that i've noticed of late is, is people realizing like you're not going to do this alone you're going to have to find dance partners within the state that doesn't have to mean a merger or an acquisition but strategic partnerships are starting to become the norm and we're seeing at least from our end you know great strides in working with people you're starting to see different parts of the supply chain mature and understand where we're at and understand who, who they want to play with. And I'll point to a lot of the retailers we work with today are now in that 10-store range, right? And, and they've matured as retailers, where it used to be kind of a handshake and a relationship, you know, and you knew the guy. That still exists, but the retailers are actually looking at data, understanding what their consumers need, and working with strategic partners the other way to make sure that they're bringing that to market.
3: And what about the illicit market? I um, mean, you, you know, I mentioned it briefly, and, and before we started recording, you, know, you were talking a little bit about that. That seems not, if not completely unique to California, right? This is a more of an issue. It's it's more of a West Coast issue, um, right? and that you have <laughs> such a large legacy market there, and legacy of, of large scale, large scale, and well, small scale to large scale cultivators uh, in California. Like, how much of that plays into the challenges that? these California businesses are seeing today?
2: Look, I, I think it's no secret, there's a lot of product that's leaving the market, right? And, and that's propped it up for a few years. But, you know, we, where we sit here in Santa Rosa, we actually are across from uh, General Hydroponics. And I I tell this story to people as we walk by every day, is we can tell how big the illicit market is by the amount of trucks that are lined up outside of General Hydroponics waiting to bring <laughs> fertilizer to basically grow stores all over the country, right? Um, uh, a year ago, or in the middle of COVID, you couldn't fit trucks on the road. Uh, today, I barely see two or three trucks a day. Well, here's—I
4: mean, here's 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 what I'd say about the black market in California, and and just in general, right? And, and I said this a lot. Like, if you look at alcohol, right? You, you're not seeing consumers buying like bathtub gin right anymore. <laughs> and the and the and the reason is like the legal producers have outcompeted the black market. And because California and other West Coast markets have such a legacy black market and generally, you know, regulation and enforcement hasn't been a priority, it has been allowed to flourish, but as the market broadly gets more and more competitive, you know, a lot of the a lot of the black market operators are just not able to compete anymore. Like they, th- their cogs are too high. They can't produce a product cheaper than, you know, than the legal market. Right. I think our view is like it's not we're not looking to the regulators to enforce this. We, we feel like we have to put out a better product at, at a better price and consumers will, will naturally gravitate to that. So it's kind of on us as an industry a little bit to outcompete the black market right it's not a, it's not just going to go away on its own i think we have to we have to create a better product at a better price and over time consumers will will prefer that um, and 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 that's on us i think as as much as it is on on regulators and and,
3: and law enforcement I think that's, I mean, I think that's absolutely right. And and, and why don't you jump in here?
1: Yeah, no, I, I think, I think what's interesting is as you guys are talking, I'm just thinking back, you know, to like 2018 and, you know, you guys are, are almost that OG, um, you know, company that, you know, you continue to thrive in California, despite all of this stuff. Um, and so is there anything more specific that you can point to, um, that NorCal has done or implemented or, or something that that has happened that has allowed you guys to succeed um, where others, despite their best efforts have failed and are failing.
2: You know, I think we've done a really good job uh, at utilizing the technology that's become available to us as cultivators Mm -hmm. and kind of getting out of our own way. Um, You know, my background is, you know, I'm a cultivator first. And um, I think what we've done from management all the way down to boots on the ground is been able to utilize the technology that wasn't available to us five years ago um, and combine that with kind of our legacy understanding of the plant, the market, um, and the cyclical nature of what happens in the California market, whether it be a flood like we're seeing today or whether it be dry when you're seeing $4,000 pounds. The market evolves, but what we've noticed has always been cyclical, and I think what you have in NORCAL is our ability to blend those two. Um, and and have that kind of feedback loop so we can approach the market in a different way. I think one of the strongest things we do as a company is pivot. Um, you know, and I think so many times in this industry, people work off of spreadsheet, they work off of numbers, but they don't understand how the market is moving. We, because of our legacy, because of that quote-unquote OG culture that that kind of thrives here, we're able to listen to our sales reps, our cultivators, our product guys who know this market inside and out, our retail stores, right? And that feedback loop is one of, is part of our secret sauce, if not the secret sauce. And because we're able to understand what's happening in the market, we're pivoting. Like, we'll put out a strategic plan for the quarter, for the year, Look, that may change two weeks into the quarter when we see something happening in the market. Um, and a perfect example of that is what we're doing with Lolo right now. Like, you know, last Can you year,
1: tell tell folks what that is.
2: Yeah, so Lolo is our is our. It's, it's, you know, I think it's the number two brand in California, of yeah. uh, indoor flower, number one probably by volume. But you know, a year ago, the the bulk market was pretty healthy, right? You were seeing twenty five hundred and three thousand dollar pounds. Um, I think we looked across the room as a company and, you know, from our product guys to our cultivators and said, Hey, we've seen this before we, you know, we see what's happening on the outdoor side. We see what's happening on the greenhouse side. We're going to hit a flood. And if we don't make that transition to branded product quickly and get it, get shelf space, we are going to be in know, for a world of hurt come next December, January. Um, so, you know, we made a, a pretty big pivot, which was to, to switch to branded product, which which you guys know is like a 90-day difference in cash, right? So not only not only do we kind of hurt our cash flows immediately, but like we took a haircut on what we were getting by by the pound, right? And and I think, you know, for us it was like, look, if, if this is how this is gonna play out a year from now, we better do it. And you know, year over year, we've seen tremendous growth. Like I said, Lolo at that time, we were barely cracking $200,000 a month. We've been doing a million dollars a month with that product wholesale for probably the last four or five months. Um, And again, that was us looking into the future with with kind of a glimpse back at the past and knowing, hey, what did you do last time this happened, right? I think what people don't recognize about California is, is we've had a market here for 20 years uh, in prop during the prop 215 days. And there were a lot of lessons to be learned and we try and implement that in, in everything we do here every day. And, and honestly, like when I talk about, you know, national cannabis and and the MSOs, I think what you're going to see in a lot of these states that they're thriving in is when competition comes, you know, I don't know if they have the historical context to help make those decisions that quickly, because, you know i think that is the that's the difference between surviving for a quarter or not, right.
4: right? yeah and i, I think too in like to to your question like what are some of the things that have enabled us to kind of navigate this market and and remain competitive when a lot of folks are are struggling just to keep the lights on and i think and jigger said this earlier in the conversation right as we pivoted strategically a few years ago to go from sort of trying to do everything right? To be vertically integrated, to have retail stores, to have a massive delivery footprint, to have brands, to have production and cultivation, you know, it's very hard to do everything really well. Right. And and what we learned was California is far too competitive for that. And at least for us, we need to focus on what it is that we do better than anyone else. We need to invest our time, our energy and our capital back into that. And by doing that, you know, we can create sustainability. I think, the way that the the regulatory environment is set up in California is it's obviously it welcomes competition. There's like 6,000 cultivation licenses in the state right now. So anybody can get a license, anybody can compete, but it's very hard to, to thrive. Right. And so for us, it was, it was that first and foremost, like what are we doing better than anyone else and how do we reinvest in that and and, and keep growing that business? I think when you look at the the landscape broadly and you know, one of the, i guess knocks you could have on the kind of regulatory environment in some of the the limited license market is it it, it potentially it potentially harms the consumer in that you're asking companies or demanding companies do everything right uh, opposed to allowing them to specialize in what they do best so the overall consumer experience is naturally not going to be as as great right and and every every market's different and they'll evolve differently but i think for us here you know, focusing on what we do best and, and reinvesting into that has allowed us to to navigate a, a highly challenging environment. You know, pretty well.
3: Yeah, and that's and that's I think that's actually a really good segue into what I wanted to get back. What I wanted to get into next, um, uh, which is you know, looking outside of California. Um, you know, you, you mentioned it here, and you're right. Your your formula of high quality products, right? High quality uh, high quality cultivation with a relatively low cost of production that would seem to be a winning strategy anywhere in the country, right? Not just in California. But when you look around at many states, especially those states east of the Mississippi, not many have managed to accomplish this, right? Instead, they, they've largely depended on those states putting caps on the number of licenses and, and as such artificially limiting competition. Um, but now you're starting to see even in places like Massachusetts, right, which for a long time has been held up as like the you know the 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 premier market in the in the east coast you know we're starting to see companies really struggle as wholesale price compression becomes a reality so w- what lessons can these companies learn from your experience and like do you think that there are many companies out there particularly in the eastern half of the country that are equipped to make it in the long run
2: yeah i like mean, I, I think they're all equipped to make it right I, I, again i, I just point point back to like we have been doing this for a long time and we're continuing to learn what we do, right? So we made the, a perfect example, is like our, our cogs are low today because we've transitioned to LED lights at some of our grows. And, you know, we started that transition almost two years ago to really better understand that technology and what we do. You combine that with really us understanding our own market and, and strains and production cycles, like that didn't happen overnight, right? I think the, what you're gonna see in these markets is they all evolve but it's going to take time. Right. And, and not only are the markets evolving, but really it starts with the consumer. A, a big thing today in California is freshness, right? Like people want fresh product in a lot of these other States, Massachusetts, you name it, some of the other ones, like people were just buying whatever you grew. Right. <laughs> right. And, and, I, and I think the, what you're seeing from these cultivators and, and these companies in other, in other States is they're starting to learn these lessons. Um, and it's going to take them time to adapt and understand how to really make these transitions. So I think it's, a, it's a, a matter of time. I think, again, back to kind of NorCal and what we do is like, we don't ever kind of rest on our laurels in terms of any of that. So we're always trying to be ahead of the curve when it comes to whether it be technology in our grows or what the market is demanding or strain selection. Um, because that's that's what's really needed in this industry, right? I mean, Chris, you've been in you've been in cannabis quite a while. You you've seen this uh, on the front lines, like you know the consumers' demands change literally every three years, and they and cultivators are call it I don't know two to three months behind that. Um, you know that hasn't hit those markets yet, right? If you're in Massachusetts, you know you walk in your dispensary. I mean, and, and you're seeing it now, where people actually calling for strains by name, right? Because we're seeing it on Instagram, social media is playing a big part of it. But prior to, prior to any of this, like you got, you went in there and got whatever you could. Mm-hmm. That was the yeah. market. Yeah. 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 And, and
3: that's, I mean, look, that's, that's still the case in a lot of, uh, in, a, in a lot of, in a lot of states, especially the more limited states where, you know, you may have a handful of cultivators, uh, you know, licensed for the entire state and they're producing everything. I think
4: though, Chris, like over time, you know, it's not unfair to assume that all markets are going to look a lot more like California than they do anything else, right? It's just the nature that it's just, I think it's just a question of how long it takes, right? What does that evolution look like in each of these markets? And they're all going to be different. But if you fast forward to a decade or two, I don't you know, I don't think the moats are going to be that valuable anymore. And I think you're going to have to compete. You're going to have to produce a great product. But first and foremost, we are actively looking at coming into other markets, right? We recognize that, like taking the skill sets, the IP that we've learned here, you know, competing every day and bringing that, you know, high quality, fair price product to consumers up and down the East Coast, like there's a demand for that, right? And we're not, and not the only people that can do that so you're going to see these markets evolve in, in in a multitude of ways but i think it's it's not it's unrealistic to assume that these moats are going to last forever and you better be able to compete like that that's you know if you're going to be if you're going to have a sustainable business in these markets you better put out a, a quality product at a, at a fair price like you can't we don't rest on our laurels here but you certainly can't in 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 markets that are gated assume that you're going to have that protection into perpetuity because it's, it's it's really not realistic Of
1: course, of
3: course. uh,
1: I mean, that actually went into our our next question of, you know, you guys have kind of honed these skills um, and they're very transferable. So, you know, are there, can you get into any more specifics as to what other markets are interesting?
4: Yeah. I mean, I'll say that we've looked at a lot and and we've looked at a lot of different structures, right? We've looked at partnerships, we've looked at acquisitions. Um, our, Our view is that you know we've done a good job here in california uh and certainly with the success of lolo which we think is really like i i think we've really got like a the right product market fit for the brand which is to say you know high quality product that's priced fairly and there's not a lot of frills behind it i think that's what a large amount of cannabis consumers want and so taking that to other markets mostly on the east coast you know, we see a lot of opportunity to bring that brand there and, and, and do that on the back of our sort of cultivation capabilities. So these aren't licensing deals per se, where we license the brand to another cultivator as much as they're, they're really us coming in and either partnering, building out, right, retrofitting an existing facility and kind of bringing that IP and, and that skill set to, to those markets. And we feel like there's, there's a lot of demand there for that, for that product, for that level of quality.
2: Yeah, I think without getting into specifics, I think what we're looking for is opportunities to cultivate without having to be vertical, um, you know, and, and that means I look, you could still go into a market like Florida as a cultivation partner. But, you know, I, our game is not trying to open 150 retail stores. Um, we believe we have a product that most retailers will want. Um, we've seen that in California. So, you know, I think when we look at markets, we want we also want to look at markets that, you know, it's, it's been a rough ride in California competing with the black market. You know, as much as everybody's excited about New York, right, you know, we look at New York and say, "Wow, that looks like California all over again." Um, you know, uh, highly competitive markets to us, though, within uh, within the legal game. You know, I, I think we we love that idea of a sandbox that everybody gets the same amount of uh, footprint in. Right? I mean. You know, we would love to participate in a market where you could only have 20,000 square feet or 60,000 square feet. You know, and, and this goes back to, like, I think one of the problems we're going to see today. And you've started to see it already is is oversupply with some of the big the big grows that are already out there. Like, I think you're starting to see American cannabis companies just like the Canadians um, that in this rush have have put on so much scale that I'm not sure everybody makes up, you know, if you look at anybody's pro forma, they they have 25% of the market by by the size of their cultivation. Like that doesn't really work, right? So again, for us, smaller craft markets with decent competition um, is something that we're looking forward to because I think it's a way for us to kind of really show, you know, our capabilities. Yeah. yeah so-
3: I was just, just going to have a couple of very, very quick follow ups on that point. I mean, you, you, Jigar, you, you you rightly mentioned that there, you know, you look at a state like New York, and it looks like that's one that's going to that's going to look like California before too long. And I think you're 100% right there. Um, so, but there are still a lot of states out there with these silos that will probably exist for a while. Whether you know whether or not that's a good thing for the consumers, right? That's a whole other conversation. But they are going to exist for a while. So, like, what are the states that are most attractive to you right now? Because I would think that in some of those siloed states, uh, your you know your combination of low cost production at a good price point, when you're going in and competing against you know larger MSOs who have really focused on you know, on 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 putting out as much product as they can, but not necessarily on price because they haven't had to, right? Those would seem to be attractive. So, like, where where are you most excited about?
2: Well, look, I'm an Illinois guy, and we'd love to be back in Illinois. <laughs> um, I, I think that that's just a market where I think you know you're going to start seeing, it. and it's not just. Here's the thing, and right? it's not just legal cultivators, right? If once cannabis has been introduced to a market, now you also bring on the illegal. Capacity that comes with it, right? So you're not just competing with MSOs. You've introduced a whole new generation to cannabis. People, especially in a recession or an upcoming recession, do you want to pay $75 for a high quality eighth, or do you want to pay $50 for a high quality eighth? That difference is enough to drive somebody to the black market. So at some point, somebody is going to have to get there on the legal side, or the black market will take over. So, you know, when we look at it, like states like Illinois, we'd love to participate in something like that. But also up and coming states. Like I look at a state like Missouri that's about to go wreck. You know, I think a lot of these places are underserved, but I look at Missouri's... Uh, Regulatory system. I think they did a good job. It was a cap at 30 or 60 K. Is, is that the number? Yeah, I
4: think it's 30,000, mm-hmm.
2: you know, and, and I think like that's a fair number to see how how things play out. And I, and I think those are the states that are really appealing to us from from that standpoint. Um, New Jersey, I, I mean, again, close to New York, you know, and, and as much as everybody, you know, is right now is, is kind of in disarray about Massachusetts. You know, I still like the hundred thousand cap there. I think. With more retail. I mean, it's it's just that, look, they're all gonna end up looking like California, right? So where are you not gonna gonna really get beat up first is where we would look to expand. And again, back to back to New York, like you have these massive grows that are competing with the biggest black market in the world. You know, I think that's the problem that that we see when we look at that state.
3: No, well, I think that's I think that's all very fair, and I think you're you're identifying some of the some some of the right places. And um, as a Chicago resident and an Illinois guy myself, we'd love to have you here. We we need we need we need better quality product, and we need somebody to help uh, you know help drive these prices down in Illinois because right now it's uh, you know there's uh, the 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 product quality is not the best uh, certainly for a state market, and it's uh, and it's among the most expensive. So we would love to have you guys out here. But I'll turn it over to Ann for uh, for for the next one here.
1: Well, the last time that that we um, spoke and worked together, um, we were talking uh, about uh, going public um, and, you know, a lot of people turned to the Canadian markets, you know, as their their way to access capital. But um, it has been an absolute roller coaster. Well, more like a free fall,
4: I was gonna say. Maybe, maybe, maybe it hasn't gone.
1: Okay, that was wrong to compare it to a roller coaster, but I mean, are you, you know, and these companies are crushed and they're, you know, having a hard time, um, you know, raising capital and all that fun stuff. But do you feel like you've dodged a bullet um, and would accessing those capital markets through the public entity in some capacity be something that you guys are interested in the future?
4: look i think you know to the first part of the question like having avoided going public i think we feel like that was the right decision you know we pursued that uh that strategy a couple different ways both as a pure play rto and then as part of a large stack and in both cases as we got closer to the finish line like we just realized that just the markets weren't there to support it right And, and i think you know, when you look at these public, you look at the top five or top ten U.S. you know by market cap public companies. Like, it's really hard to make an argument that they're not massively undervalued right now, right? And and especially with what we all know is more a question of when, not if, you see structural changes here, you know, in the U.S. that that will allow uplisting events and will unlock a lot more institutional capital, right? I, I do think you know, at the at the same time, I think that they've done themselves a disservice by being public, because once you go public, you absolutely lose control of the narrative. I mean, these are fundamentally strong companies that people should be excited about owning a piece of. Yet you look at you look at <laughs> you, you you look at where they're trading and it, and it's just disconnected from reality. Right. I I have a lot of friends that are in traditional venture capital. Right. And when uh, and at least for maybe excluding the past few months, but looking backwards at like valuations and multiples that they were funding and are funding, you know, honestly, like ideas, right? They're not proven businesses yet. And you think like, well, cannabis is just as much growth potential as any of these sectors. I mean, the U.S. market is massive and it's really still untapped. And then you have Europe, Asia, South America and decades of meaningful growth. And absolutely the top players are going to be in the U.S., right? So You've got so much upside that's inherently there that you look at these companies and they trade like you know utility stocks, you know, on a bad day. I mean, it just <laughs> it just makes no sense. So I, I think that we all know that the the valuations that you see are not real and the volume is not there. so there's 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 absolutely zero liquidity anyway. So I think you know, it was, it was it's always easy in hindsight to to look at it and say, well, it's, you know we're really. We were really smart to avoid going public, um, you know. But it's certainly, you know, I think we've we've definitely dodged a bullet, <laughs> to use your words. Um, and also, you don't want to be a small public company, right? Like the costs of being public at, at the size that we are just just totally don't make sense. And I think a lot of companies are are feeling that pain. So I, I think you know avoiding that was the right decision. And looking forward to a more normalized capital markets for the sector, I think there's going to be a lot of you know success stories that that come through this. I, I will say, for better or worse, the lack of capital has absolutely forced the maturation of companies. And you're seeing a lot of companies leave the market, and that was going to happen inevitably, right? in in, in a in a more frothy capital market environment the runway for inefficient companies is a lot longer. So, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's difficult to operate a business, you know, that's expected to scale and, and chase growth, but also generate cash flow. Like that's very hard to do uh, without any access to growth capital. It's like fighting with both hands tied behind your, your back and maybe a blindfold on. But if you've been able to do it, You've come through it in a great place, and I, I think it's important that as an industry, we don't lose perspective. Like we are, you know the leading companies and leading brands are going to do disproportionately well as things you know normalize here. Um, but certainly we're we're grateful for the fact that we've been able to remain private and access private capital and and, you know, accomplish our objectives and, and grow our business without having the added complexity, cost and, and burden of, of being a public company, because I don't think the benefits there, you know, from a valuation or liquidity perspective, you know, whatsoever.
3: No, I think that's, I really, really appreciate that. And it's, it is a, it is a rough road. And I think, in the, you know, look, when you look back on it, so many companies that were going public when they did, right, they did it at a time when there was no private capital to access and the only capital out there were you know from like media retail investors. Um yeah. and that you know that really flipped on a dime and I think you guys wound up in a in a in a really good position because of it. Um but let's you know let's shift shift uh, sorry guys well, no, go edit ahead. This out, but did you want did you sorry did no, you want to add anything no. to
4: that? I, I, no, I was just gonna agree with you and I was just gonna say fundamentally like that the, the what what's lacking is like you don't have the right capital for the businesses right like retail investors should not be the buyers of these companies going public they should be you know growth focused institutions that have much longer time horizons and you know want to invest in good businesses good management teams and and take a longer term view right the time horizon and risk profile of a retail investor it's just not the right fit and it's not the right mix and and yeah it's easy in hindsight to, to identify that it's a lot harder when you're being pushed to go public and bankers are, are offering, you know, access to, to tremendous amounts of capital without the caveat that, Oh, just by the way, you'll get it, but there will be no aftermarket support whatsoever and it's going to turn on you and it's,
3: it's not going to be pleasant. Right. So, yeah, yeah, totally fair. Um, well, let's just to shift gears just a little bit. Uh, you know, this week, the California legislature sent a bill to governor Newsom's desk uh, that would allow for interstate commerce between California and other states that pass similar laws, right? Of course, provided that the federal government allows for it uh, either by law or guidance, uh, which is interesting, right? You don't necessarily need a shift in federal law but some kind of guidance memo or tacit approval from the attorney general might get it done. Um, if something like this were to become a reality, what does that do for NorCal's business? Um, and, and further, like, what are your thoughts on opening up interstate commerce for cannabis companies in, in general?
2: Look, I think if we've gotten to interstate commerce, we, we are looking at the mature market we've talked about. So I think for a state like California, it does open up our outdoor and greenhouse businesses to really thrive nationally. But I think for us, it, it just makes it really, you know, for me personally, it feels like we've achieved the goal we set out to do when I was 18 years old. Um, but when I, when I look at it from a business perspective, I, I think it's it's only good for us. I think a lot of people fear that. Uh, and I, I, again, like, where we say I think that we can become uh, more efficient as a national company um, by placing different, I would call it, cultivation sites in different parts of the state. Like I, like I alluded to earlier, I think, you know, when I think about cannabis, I, I don't think about, you know, uh, I think about freshness and I almost think of um, produce in terms of getting that to the consumer. So I don't think you're going to have these mega factories providing everything to the entire country. Uh, so for us, we we take a look. We take a look at, at federal legalization and say, bring it on like we're excited. And and I think everybody should be excited about that. You know, at the end of the day, most of us that started in this space got into it for different reasons um, than a lot of people that are here today. Uh, the end of federal prohibition of cannabis is a big deal beyond the monetary.
4: I would I would I would caution that excitement, though, with the with the comment that I doubt a lot of states are gonna allow for that reciprocity. And I think specifically, you know, East Coast states that have built meaningful tax base around this industry would probably feel threatened by the concept of that tax base leaving, i.e., being exported to California and, and Oregon. So for, for us as as operators here, it would be it would be amazing. It would open up our product to you know consumers all across the country, to Chris's earlier point around maybe not having the the depth of quality in the Chicago or Illinois market, like the, that's a quick solve when you can buy, you know, you look at what the wholesale market, you know, is pricing flour in Illinois and, and you contrast that to California. Very clearly you'd see an opportunity for retailers to buy, you know, superior product at reduced cost and pass that on to consumers. I mean, it's great for the industry. It's great for consumers, but I, I'd be, I'd say cautiously optimistic that you'll see States adopt that and, you know, you know, potentially give up that that you know what is meaningful tax revenue.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's funny. As you, you I mean, you, you you talk about Illinois. Like, I think you know, Illinois is a state that's like really ripe for. Interstate commerce from these western states, and probably would be one of the last states to allow for it. Right.
2: They didn't legalize it because they love cannabis. Right. Right. <laughs>
3: <laughs> <That's> <laughs> right. I mean,
2: you still have states
4: like where you can't ship, you know, wine to? Right. Like if you know, I don't know what. The yeah, I mean,
1: there's, was, like, there's still the ABC states. Yeah. are, yeah. yeah. You know, I mean,
2: Pennsylvania, Massachusetts. There's certain yeah. states that that definitely make it hard to ship alcohol. And again, like if you look at the prohibition of of alcohol, like, while there's still maybe a few holdouts, it it took almost 80 years for that to to come to fruition. So again, you know, yes, it would be, it'll be a great day when it happens, but I I agree with Doug, like, and and again, what's the incentive, right? So again, back to the tax question, like there will be an import tax, like, again, it'll, this will take a, a long time for a lot of these guys that are just getting into the space to give up the meaningful tax dollars ahead of them.
1: I mean, can we expand it to, to safe banking here? And, you know, there there is this momentum kind of happening um, and then some other reforms for, you know, criminal record expungement and um, SBA loans um, for mom and pop shops and social equity businesses. What would getting that full banking access mean for you guys? And and what other reforms would you what other dream reforms would you have for a federal package? are short of full I equalization. Mean, i
4: think you know i think the biggest driver of value creation for the industry will be a set of reforms that allow us institutions to invest in the space and 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 Nasdaq New York Stock Exchange to list us cannabis companies i think that's that will unlock you know the right type of capital that will we'll get behind the right companies and will meaningfully you know, drive this market forward in, in a positive way. You know, that may happen as part of safe banking. It may happen as you know, a part of a larger set of legislative initiatives. I think, you know, I don't, like Jigger said, I, I don't, we don't, we're not looking at interstate commerce as a solve, because I just don't think that's realistic. But I think having access to just just being able to operate in a more normalized capital markets environment and actually being able to invest in growth and you know intelligently invest in expansion you know that's it's just stunting the industry the, the lack of growth capital and so
2: well even debt right like you, yeah. mid-sized cannabis companies doing 50 to 100 million are paying 15 to 20% interest right like because, they, can because to, they can't access because the right they can't access
4: capital for the company and,
2: and i think that's only available know, that access to credit cards i mean i think uh at, at one point when there were credit card transactions that were happening i think people saw a 30% increase in sales so again I, you know i think this the industry itself is is definitely you know we do have our hands tied on a lot of these things um and you know safe banking will change the industry. I think the the, the the bigger factor for a company like ours is you know access to, to that debt would be like at, at those rates really does help for us in terms of from a growth perspective but I think from an M&A or a target perspective like you start to see real valuations, right? Like you would start to compare us to other industries next to a craft brewery or or whatever they decided to to use in in that manner and I think a lot of companies, especially California companies, um, would be looking at a, a completely different picture.
3: No, I think that's right. Um, and look, obviously, safe banking is the is the is the big one here. I think that's a game changer for. I mean, for basically everybody, um, and I think that was very astute to to mention the, you know, the 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 access to debt and just what a game changer that would be, particularly for smaller businesses um, out there. And you know, in addition to the big ones, uh, I will be curious though. So like while we're on this, you know, we've heard that this this package is probably going to be safe plus, right? So it may include a few things in addition to safe banking, but falling short of full legalization. So, like, I'm just kind of curious, like, what what else do you think the Feds should be thinking about here that could be a real game changer for businesses like yourselves, you know, but still falling short of of legalization.
4: I, and I mean, I, I, again, I would go back to creating that pathway for an uplisting event and unlocking the right institutional capital. I think that's just so overdue and needed for this industry to to thrive. So that, right. And then, you know, beyond that, you can get, you could certainly, and we would agree that like the social justice reform, the criminal reform, I think that those are really important pieces that, you know, collectively we all need to get right. Um, It's not appropriate for you to have like these massive thriving businesses while folks are still in jail for possessing Grams of cannabis. I mean, it's just ludicrous. But, um, you know, I think from a business first perspective, it's it's it's, it's you got to unlock the capital and, and let these companies invest and grow. And you, you part of the reason you're not seeing any M&A, which is, you know, California is about as fragmented as you can possibly be. Right. Like Illinois is. Probably you take the top five companies in Illinois, and they probably have half the market, right? From a, from a market share perspective, mm-hmm. the top mm-hmm. five companies in California have less than ten percent of the market, right? And there's no meaningful M and A because there's no capital to facilitate it. Valuations are just unrealistically low, right? So all of that starts to go away. You start to see good companies merge, get better. Like it's just and, and ultimately offer a better product to consumers, which ultimately pushes the black market out. I mean, it's a net positive all the way around. And I don't think anybody disagrees with that. I think, you know, it's just hard to get all of this. There's this is such a massive issue. And, and you know, I think politically folks are trying to get it right. But it's it needs to happen. I mean, I think, you know, as as the industry is concerned, like it's it's uh, it's just making it almost impossible to to thrive. Right. And I don't think that people set these Nobody set this up with it, with the intention of of seeing these companies, you know, flounder, right? I mean, these these states set these programs up to be a source of job creation, source of tax, right? I mean, all of the reasons that, and and to help you know eliminate the black market, right? And you know, we need these reforms for for that promise to to be fulfilled. Very fair. Um, well, I think, let's, Chris, that, that, that stops short of federal legalization, right? I'm not saying we absolutely. need it to be federally legal. We just need it to be right size. We need access to the right capital, and 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 that'll have the the impact that it that is needed.
3: That's right. And all of these are things that have been talked about as far as a broader reform package right, that doesn't include full legalization, um, you know, whether or not any of these other than banking wind up in the final package. If there even is a final package, I right, still very much remains to be seen. Um, but you know, why don't we finish off here with a look, a uh, little bit of a look at the future. Um, so you know, what, what innovations in cannabis currently excite you guys the most? Um, and what kind of innovations should consumers and investors be looking at as kind of the wave of the future?
2: Well, I mean, I think, uh, I think we see it every day, right? The CPG market and new products coming to, coming to, to market or, or like I, even I'm like blown away sometimes when I walk into a dispensary and, and see a pill that has exactly what I need to give me a natural sleep medication. Right. Or, uh, you know, so I, I think that we're going to start to see a lot of cool pharmaceutical things happening in this space. And I wouldn't put it like in the, in the term of like from the pharmaceutical companies, but I, I think you're seeing a lot of innovation on just the cannabinoid side. And, um, folks really focusing on that. I think there's some great companies out there doing good work in that. I think, you know, from us on the cultivation side, from a technological perspective, I mean, some of the stuff we're seeing right now is crazy. You'd never thought, you know, we would be able to do what we do. Like I, I tell Doug all the time, like people quit using some of the companies we work with, our cultivation numbers, because they said it was just incredible, even though they knew that they were true, right? So, like, if they were advertising kind of what we were putting out there, what we're they're doing,
1: they're screwing right? with the curve. <laughs> yes,
2: they're <screwing laughs> Yeah, we it. were screwing with the curve. Um, so for us, for us, it's like really exciting to see what we're doing with the cultivation technology that's out there specifically the lighting and HVAC that we're able to manipulate for really pushing the plant and in, into a different environment. Um, so I look from a, from that side, I'm totally geeking out on what's available to us, but you know, for me personally, just the CPG stuff is really, really cool to see evolve. Um, I'll, I'll shout out if you guys are familiar, Chris at level, yeah, like, what he's doing with his products is just, I think it's the next world.
1: I love it. Well, thank you guys so much for your time. Um, we're super excited to see where you guys are going next and consider this an open invitation to, to come back and update us anytime.
4: Appreciate it.
2: Well, I appreciate it's
4: the conversation, you guys. guys. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. Have a good day.
1: Our thanks again to Jigar Patel and Doug Cortina of NorCal Cannabis. To find out more about the company and their products, check them out at NorCalCan. Dot com. That's N-O-R-C-A-L-C-A-N-N.com. And as always, thank you so much for listening. If you want to chat with us, please find us on Twitter with the handle at the underscore Green Rush or on Instagram at the Green Rush underscore podcast or drop us an email at Green Rush at KCSA. We are always looking for feedback and guest ideas. Um, thank you so much for sharing them. Uh, and don't forget to subscribe to The Green Rush in your favorite podcatcher. That's one take, Shay, one take.